You might already know this if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, but I love it when one of our middle grade or YA literary throwbacks delves into the often complicated dynamics of families. Personally, I think it's fascinating to talk about that kind of stuff. Plus, I think it's really important for young readers to have access to stories about all kinds of families dealing with all kinds of transitions and problems. Zilpha Keatley Snyder's The Headless Cupid is a great example of this. The Headless Cupid was published in 1971 and won a Newbery Honor in 1972. It tells the story of the newly blended Stanley family. There's David, the big brother, who's taken on a lot of responsibility for his younger siblings, Blair, Janie, and Esther, after the recent loss of their mother. There's Molly, their new stepmom. There's their dad, who we don't know very much about and is woefully MIA for most of the book. And now there's Amanda, Molly's daughter from a previous marriage who shows up at the Stanley home ready to shake things up. Amanda and David are suddenly in a weird competition for oldest sibling status, but there's one thing about Amanda that really sets her apart. She wants to make it very clear that she's into witchcraft and the occult. The younger Stanley siblings are fascinated with Amanda's unique interests, and she challenges them to a series of trials and rituals that she says will make them eligible for initiation into the occult world. While all of this is happening, tensions arise between family members, and the kids learn about the mysterious history of their new old house. There were reports of poltergeist activity there many years before. Is the poltergeist back to cause more trouble? On today's episode, my guests and I dig deep into the blended family dynamics, as well as the consequences of traditional gender roles and expectations for the Stanleys. We discuss the importance of emotional support for kids in the wake of a major trauma, and how those resources were not as readily available when The Headless Cupid was written in the 70s. We talk about the book's depiction of witchcraft and why that's been controversial in the years since. And we discuss an extremely disturbing, racist scene that would absolutely not fly in publishing today, and shouldn't have flown in 1972 either. Today's guest has a dog named Ramona, after Beverly Cleary's Ramona books, so you already know that we are kindred spirits. Jen Dahl is the author of the YA novel Unclaimed Baggage and the memoir Save the Date, The Occasional Mortifications of a Serial Wedding Guest. She's also a journalist who writes for a range of outlets, including the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire, and others. Jen is currently working on a new YA novel about teens on the high school debate circuit. I don't know about you, but I am already hooked based on that very brief summary alone. Find Jen at thisisjendahl on Twitter and at jendahl on Instagram, as well as at her website, jendahl.com. Thanks so much to Jen for being a guest on SSR. Thanks also to all of the wonderful listeners who follow along on my reading and podcasting journeys on social media. We are at SSRpod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. As far as Facebook goes, things are even chattier in a smaller but mighty group called the SSR Podcast Community. If you're into Facebook groups and book talk, you should totally look that one up and join. Speaking of social media, I'm going to ask you a favor, listeners. If you love the show, would you please, please consider sharing about it on your social platform of choice? Most people do this on Instagram stories, which is great, but you can share on Facebook or Twitter if one of those is more your thing. Seriously though, could you give SSR some social media love this week? Please be sure to tag me so I can see what you have to say. These kinds of social shares make a big difference for the pod because they help more people find it. I run the podcast by myself, but I really do rely on my amazing listener community to continue bringing more book lovers, and pop culture fans to the show. Thank you so much in advance for helping me do that. You can also help me bring new book lovers and pop culture fans into this community by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes. It takes just a few seconds to do this. Do you want to support SSR and rock some cool bookish swag? Yeah, I thought so. Visit www.ssrpodcast.com shop to check out stickers, bookmarks, shirts, and tote bags. It's all very, very cute. And one final way you can support the podcast, coming on board as a Patreon sponsor. Patreon allows you to support independent creators like me, and you get exclusive rewards like SSR swag, newsletters, bonus episodes, exclusive voice notes, input on book selection, and more. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month, and there are different rewards available at every tier of sponsorship. I love all my patrons so much and would love to welcome more people into the family. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details and next steps. This has been the weirdest summer ever, and I can't believe it's already winding down. But with Fall Upon Us, so many people are getting into new routines. Listening to audiobooks is a fantastic addition to any routine. I love listening while I drive or clean or cook, and I'm sure you can find ways to work audiobooks into your routine as well. And if you're going to listen to audiobooks, I have to tell you about Libra FM. Libra FM is a platform that allows you to support independent bookstores with the purchase of the same audiobooks that you can get from bigger companies. I'm not going to name names, but you know who I'm talking about. 
The audiobooks are the same price too. You can support any indie you want if they're partnered with Libra FM. So choose a local favorite or send some love to a store you've dreamed of visiting for years. Go to Libra FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. I love having the opportunity to share with you every week about this very cool way to love on independent bookstores in these very weird quarantine times. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jen. Welcome to SSR. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. I'm very excited. So we're talking about Zelpha Keatley Snyder's 1971 middle grade novel, The Headless Cupid. This is the second Zelpha Keatley Snyder book that we've talked about on the podcast. Last year, we talked about the book The Egypt Game with Andrea Bartz, who is another author like yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And we had a lot of fun talking about that book. I'll be sure to link that episode in the show notes. I was a big Zelpha Keatley Snyder fan when I was a kid, so I am thrilled anytime I get to dive back into her list of books. And <laughs> I'd love if you could share a little bit about why you chose this book from the list of options that I sent you? Well, I read The Egypt Game. Actually, so I never read Zilpha Keatley Snyder when I was a kid. And one of my really close friends, maybe a year or two ago, was like, did you ever read The Egypt Game? And I definitely have a habit of going back and trying to read middle grade books, you know, as a grown up. I I go back and read the ones that I have read as a kid, and I read the ones that I haven't read. So I read that one and loved it. And then I saw her name on this, on your selection. And I was like, yes, I will read that. I also really loved that title. Because I feel like now we don't get books that are called things like The Headless Cupid. Yeah, You know, there's, it's something like both it's scary and it's very clear. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like I feel like books titles these days kind of have, they have like something, there's like some creative twist in them. And this is just like, here's what it is. It's a headless Cupid. So I'm like, tell me more about that. I want to know. Yeah. I do feel like there's this pressure now. There's like a, it's like a contest among book titles, like who can be more vague, but also like more clever. And then you yes. never really know like what the book is about just based on Absolutely. the title alone. Yeah. I would say that this book, um, when I was a kid and I picked it up, I had already read the Egypt game. I think I had already read the gypsy game, which I know is a problematic title in itself. And mm-hmm. we haven't talked about it on the show yet, but I knew mm-hmm. that I liked this author And I remember thinking that the title meant that it was somehow related to Valentine's Day because I was a kid (laughs) and like that's what you would think a book called The Headless Cupid would be about. Right. So I was very surprised that it was actually a ghost story really and a mystery. So while it is a very sort of like direct and striking title, I would say that Zelfa Keatley Snyder kind of surprises us. Again, if you're like a naive kid like I was when I read it when I was probably nine or ten, I did not think that it was going to be a ghost story based on the title alone. Mm -hmm. And then it's, it is a ghost story, but it's also something so different. Even when you read it, you know, yeah. you're like, oh, who is the ghost in this story exactly? Like, there are many. <laughs> so many so, possible ghosts in yeah. this story. <laughs> it's worth mentioning up front that this book was a Newbery Honor winner in 1972. We, of course, have to give the author props for that. A lot of her books have actually won Newbery Honors, so she has quite a successful career behind her. And like I said, I will take any opportunity to dive into her backlist. So let's talk about the setup for this book. So Mm -hmm. this book is about a lot of things. As you just mentioned, for me reading it as an adult, what it's really about is family dynamics and Uh, blended family Mm -hmm. dynamics. And I don't think that that's something that I could have picked up on when I was a kid. Although when I read this, I was sort of smack in the middle of being part of a blended family. But when I read it as an adult, I have such a different level of appreciation for what the author is like so skillfully trying to do with 
putting all of these characters together in one house, kind of showing us how they're coming together or maybe not gelling so well. I even was able to pick up on some of these sort of monkey dynamics between the parents, which I definitely wouldn't have been able to sense when I was a kid. So I would say that that was my first impression because we meet David, who is an 11-year-old boy. He's the oldest of the four Stanley children. Their mother passed away a year ago, which I just have to say off the bat, they have barely been able to adjust to losing their mother and already their life has transformed. And I think that we have to just like lay that groundwork up front because their life has changed so quickly. Yeah. David is a hero. Like my heart breaks for him. And I think the way that she, one of the things that makes her so great is just how she makes these characters so real and so heart-wrenching, but you don't realize that you're sort of eating that up when you're a kid. You're just kind of, it's like osmosis, you know, like, oh, these kids are doing this thing and that makes sense. And nothing is really hitting you on the head. But as an adult, those child dynamics and with the parents and the way that David, who's 11, takes over the role of parent for his younger siblings and then kind of is managing Amanda, who is the daughter of Molly, who his dad has married now. It's like, oh, my heart was just breaking for him the whole time. Like, he's such a good kid. He just... He tries so hard and he's so loving. Yeah, and I totally related to him. I I didn't Mm -hmm. have the same situation as as David does in this book when I was growing up, but I think that I just, I felt his personality like deep within my soul. So my parents got divorced when I was very young. I was about two. Mm -hmm. And my dad got remarried when I, when I was five, I believe. And shortly after that, um, he and my stepmom, who's now been in my life for like as long as I can remember, uh-huh. they have three children. And we don't really use the word or the term half-sisters in my family. I have three sisters on that side. And then I also have step-siblings on my mom's side who came into my life much later. But as I was reading this book, I just sort of had these flashbacks of myself when I was 11 or so, David's age. My sisters at that point would have been five, three, and one. So they were little. Actually, like pretty close to the ages of David's siblings. Uh-huh. And I have always been the kind of person, and I, I learned this for sure when I took the Enneagram test. I'm not sure if, if you do the Enneagram <laughs> thing. I always forget. I did, and now I don't remember what my results were. But. I know. I don't <laughs> remember what my number was, and uh-huh. I, I know I probably should have looked this up because I've talked about this on the podcast before. I can never remember if I'm a two or a three, but uh-huh. I remember taking the test and just having this realization because whatever my number is, it's basically like the person who just has like an intense need to be needed. Uh-huh. And I think that that came up a lot when I was a kid because as Uh these new siblings were coming into my life and as I was sort of like finding my role within these different families, I just wanted to be helpful. Like it was very important to me to be like, I know that I'm only here on the weekends, but like, look at me. I'm so helpful. Like I'm such a good sister. Like, look, and that's like survival. Yeah. You know, if you, if you, if you can sort of put that value and it's also a problem that people get into where your value is how other people feel about you. But aside from therapy, it like, it makes sense. You want to be needed. You want to do something that gives everyone else sort of joy or happiness. And then you cement your role as necessary in that group, which is very confusing because there are all these new people and you have to, you know, it's your new family, which is just, I was thinking about it. I got married last year and I have two stepkids and they are grown up basically. I mean, one is 17 and one is in her twenties, but just that role of sort of a new family where there are these kids and you're kind of a mom. You know, I was thinking a lot about Molly and how at one point David says something, or maybe he's talking to his dad and his dad is like, well, you know, Molly is kind of struggling being in this new role as a mom of a big family. And I was like, huh, that is very interesting. Like, first of all, you can feel like the 1970s in that, right? Yeah, totally. (laughs) He's like this little woman, like she's not equipped to deal with all of these changes. Yeah, I picked up on that a little too. Yeah, and that it has to be her role too, Mm -hmm. you know, and that like she would have to be the mom of a big family. At the same time, she is because she has four-year-old twins that she is now the parental mother of. And Janie is like six. David is... 11 and Amanda then comes into the picture and she's, is she 12 or 13? She's 12. Yeah. I thought that was interesting that she was only a year older than David, because I think it just sort of like raised the stakes on this weird power struggle between them where I feel like they're both trying to play the role of the oldest and David has played it in a very specific way. He's like a nurturing oldest, whereas Amanda wants to come in and be like the trend setting, cool, like domineering oldest. So I loved that they were only a year apart. Yeah. And that you can see 
I think I wouldn't have noticed this as a kid so much, but like how Amanda is jealous of David. Uh, maybe, maybe I would have caught onto that, but I felt it more reading it now. Like just like she sees that he is the important one in the lives of these kids and they turn to him and they ask him questions. And I was rereading a scene, you know, before we talked where I think the little kids are asking him if he can bring a lizard back to life. Yeah. And they're like, oh, David can do it. David can do it. And she kind of like looks on with this weird look on her face. And I think it's just like jealousy, like to be thought of as this important person, you know, like they think he can do anything. And I also thought that was just like super sweet that they feel that about him and that he created that by being such a kind older brother. Yeah, he's such a hero. There's a scene later in the book where he's reading to them and Amanda comes in and offers to read because she, of yes. course, like wants the opportunity to like do the oldest sibling thing. And yeah. they kind of get into like this argument about like the little kids are like, well, David can read at a fifth grade level. And she's like, well, I can read at a sixth grade level. Like they're they're just, they can never stop competing. But yeah. I love that you bring this experience of being a stepmom to the conversation because I, I just think it's like a really interesting counterpoint to my experience growing up yes. in a blended family family. And as I've gotten older, I've gained such an increased appreciation for my own stepmom who came into my life when I was four years old. And Mm -hmm. I'm now almost the same age that she was when she Uh welcomed me into her life, which is like such a weird, like life transition moment. Um, Totally. And I don't have any kids at this point in my life. So it's so crazy to me to think about like somebody who's in their early 30s, falling in love with somebody and being like, oh, I will take on your toddler. And so as that appreciation ticks up over the years, anytime I read about a step parent, I feel like I'm very interested in them and kind of like their motives and like their experience. And I was paying close attention to Molly in this book because Mm -hmm. she was taking on so much. She was taking on four kids. She was taking on four kids who had just been through a really traumatic death, the loss of their mother. And then she was taking on like moving into this new house. It seems like they all were pulled away from things that were familiar to them so that they could live in a place that was big enough to accommodate all of them. She's dealing with a very difficult transition to having her biological daughter, Amanda, move in with her full time. There's tons of tension to unpack between the two of them. And that's really hard. There's weird dynamics with her now husband because you can tell that they like don't parent the same way. And so that's sort of awkward. And then her husband is like, oh, hey, babe, guess what? I'm just going to like <laughs> go for three weeks because I have to go on a field trip for work. So like enjoy all of this. And I just like it is a little bit backwards the way it's all described because I yeah. do think the burden is like entirely placed on Molly to adjust to all of these changes but when he leaves it is really all on her and I was paying really close attention to how she was handling all of that and I just I was really empathetic for what she was going through yeah she really takes it all on and I mean I wish there was a book that was like the backstory of like the story of Molly and David's dad and I can't remember do we get his name we must get it somewhere I don't know that we do maybe he just calls him his dad but yeah like how did those two meet what happened with the mom? Because we know she died. We don't really know how. We know that she was kind of this fascinating, a little bit mystical person who believed in ghosts and things and and clearly, you know, had an impact on all of them. But then Molly seems very different and much more practical, even though she's this painter. But she's also just like jumping into taking on all of this responsibility. And I guess I wonder the social and cultural implications of her role. Obviously, if this was written now, it would be different. And I would hope at least that the dad would be sort of more of a their parent. I mean, obviously he has his job, but like the only thing I see him doing is coming in and kind of being like, hey kids, you need to, um, you can't just not talk or you, you know, right. when they're going through the, the various trials or eating with fuzzy gloves on or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah, he kind of seems to just be the guy who's telling them the rules. He doesn't seem bad. He just, it really seems like the parenting responsibility is on Molly and David yeah, and not, not the dad who I guess is going to work and making the money. You know, it's very traditional. Yeah, it feels like all of the changes that are going on in their family are happening to their dad, and he's, like, offended by all of them, which I couldn't help but laugh at. Like, later in the book, there's this conversation where it becomes very clear to David that, like, his dad is sort of hurt and annoyed by the fact that maybe Amanda's less-than-pristine behavior is rubbing off on his own children, and he's like, oh, right. she never talks to me, and, like, it seems as though my own children are doing the same. And it's right. like, well, um, it's not all on Molly to get 
get this under control. I know that you're busy, but like step in here. And I, I agree. I think that in a book written today, like you just can't get away with that. Obviously, like there are families where one parent is out working longer hours away from home. I mean, not right now so much. Everybody's working Mm -hmm. from home for the most part, but there are families where like that is the dynamic. But I think that in 1971, when this book was written, that was sort of the norm. Whereas now I don't think that that sort of like emotional distance is the rule. It's probably the exception, or at least it's not encouraged in the way that it probably was in the 70s. Like that was just taken for granted as that's just what dads do. Yeah. And I think we would, if this was written now, we would get a lot more backstory about the mom. And I think there would be, this is a fairly, they live in a sprawling old house. And at one point, Amanda says, well, your dad is poor, but they're clearly you know, middle class sort of, they have resources and there would be talk of therapy for the kids probably because they've gone through this loss and there's the the blending of the family. And I just think the emotional sort of attention that would be given to all of their, how this is all happening, there would be like a therapy side of that probably in the book. And that wasn't the case in the seventies, I don't think, uh, for just, you know, a normal family trying to blend itself and be happy and get along. Yes, certainly not in the early 70s, but I agree with you. All of these kids would benefit from therapy. And I say that as someone who freaking loves therapy. Uh, So we would all benefit from therapy. I mean, everyone should have therapy. I want more (laughs) therapy. Like I'm in therapy (laughs) and I want more. So I want these kids to have more and they have none. So like, let's get these kids in some therapy. Yeah. But they are holding up really well, I feel like. And you know, they're sweet. (laughs) They're so sweet. You can't help but fall in love with them. I was reading the author's introduction. I'm not sure if you had one of those in the edition. I did. I loved it. I loved it. And I I loved how the author talks about how some of the characters in this book are like her favorite characters that she's ever written. She specifically calls out Janie and Blair, who are two of David's younger siblings. Janie is the Mm six-year-old, I believe, who is like super precocious, super talkative, has so many questions, wants to be the center of attention, but like for very specific kind of like thoughtful reasons and just has a lot to say. And you can tell her mind is just always moving at a million miles an hour. And then Blair is one of the twins. There's a set of twins, Esther, who calls herself Tesser and Blair. Which is amazing. I amazing, love that. Love. She really is like, this is who I am. I am Tesser. And um, Blair is really sweet and very quiet. And there's some implications, I think, that maybe he has some learning differences that haven't been diagnosed. We've seen this in a couple of other books that we've read on the podcast. One that comes to mind is Homecoming. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one, but there's a character. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I believe that's by Cynthia Voigt. And Mm -hmm. um, there's a character named Maybeth who is like beautiful and everybody just talks about how pretty she is. But it's clear that there are undiagnosed learning differences going on um, Mm -hmm. and everybody like talks around it. And so this reminded me of that narrative a lot. But Blair also seems to have his own like kind of mystical abilities. He seems Mm -hmm. to have some ESP. He can kind of like predict when things are going to happen. And that plays into the book going throughout the plot. But yeah, Blair is also one of Zelfa Keatley Snyder's favorite characters. So I liked that context going into it, knowing that like, okay, pay special attention to Janie and Blair because yes. she loves them. And I'm sure as an author, you have like a soft spot in your heart for a certain of your characters um, and knowing that would probably change the way people read your books. Yeah. And I did. I mean, Blair is like my favorite, I think, just because he knows he knows what's going on but not in a way that would be sort of like the approved way of knowing what was going on. You know, she describes him as representing the innocent magic that some very young and sensitive children seem to possess, which is like, perfect. yes, I completely get that, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And, and there's like the way that the ghosts in this book, like Amanda is a ghost because she creates ghostly things that are happening. Blair is like a ghost because he's sort of behind the scenes figuring he knows stuff. And it just comes out of nowhere. And he also is a channel to like what may or may not be a real ghost. And the mom is a ghost because she is no longer there. And it's like, you know, even the dad could be seen as a ghost because he goes away. And when he's not there or when he goes away on his three-week trip, all of these crazy things happen in the house, you know? But I love Blair. He's he's like the cutest. Yeah, and I love the way that Zelfa Keatley Snyder, her name is a mouthful, by the way, um, sets him up because <laughs> every time the plot would kind of turn on something related to Blair, it would surprise me because I feel yeah. like she just kind of laid these really subtle clues throughout the early part of the book where yeah. I had an idea that there was something like extra special about him and that maybe he knew some things that other people in the book didn't, but there were mm-hmm. so many other things happening in this family that it was easy to forget that, which I think is right. like representative of probably what it's like to actually 
actually live in this family because Blair is so quiet. Like, we know he's special, but he gets caught up in the chaos quite a bit. And then at the end, I was like, oh, right. Like, he really is different than the rest of the family, and that ends Mm -hmm. up being really important. So I thought that that was really well done, um, and I I just like the way that she plotted his character arc. Oh, I loved it. And the way that he, yeah, he kind of set when he does say things, you know, they say like when people don't talk very often and then they say something, you listen, that's not really the case with him. (laughs) They kind of, they kind of listen, but they also are like, Oh, it's Blair. He's just, you know, like at one point he says something like that crow, because Amanda has this pet crow that she is kind of mistreating horribly. Um, which is another thing that I thought would not exactly fly in current literature but like he's like that crow is angry and they're like oh you know okay yeah maybe it is maybe it isn't whatever but the crow really is angry and he's right and you then find out later I think one of the beautiful things about the book at the end is that there's a realization that um just because you didn't give people the attention or the, you know, maybe David hasn't been exactly listening to Blair the whole time and then in the end he's like wow that kid actually does know more than I thought. And I think that's special because it's like everyone in the world has the potential to like really be saying something important, right? Even if we sort of pass them off as not. So I liked that in the end that there's kind of this, hmm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. David thought he was being such a good ally to Blair because he was always defending him and like kind of staying two or three steps ahead of him. I mean, David's sort of MO throughout the book is just to like do everything he can to set his siblings up for success. That's kind of his like go-to plan of action every day, no matter what it is. He is trying to like make them comfortable and make sure they're having fun with all of Amanda's like supernatural games. And he wants to make sure that they get initiated into her like supernatural club. And so he is the one who's constantly like setting them up to make sure that that happens. So yes. I think he's working so hard. He's all working the time. so hard. <laughs> and I think with Blair in particular, like he always feels like he has to be his champion. And mm-hmm. Amanda unfortunately does say several hurtful things to and about yeah. Blair throughout the book where she writes him off as crazy, sort of implies that he doesn't know anything. And again, yeah. that kind of ties back to that implication that maybe he has some learning differences that we were mentioning before. And David is standing up for him and, like, again, trying to, like, speak for him in a way. And I think at the end Mm -hmm. of the book, he realizes, like, oh, maybe there's another way that I could be a good big brother to Blair by listening to him or by not always feeling like I have to be the one jumping to his defense or, like, fixing things for him. So I'm hopeful that, like, this could maybe, like, transition into a new chapter of their relationship. Yeah, that there is that Blair can speak for himself. And what he's saying is actually really powerful and important that he gets to say it in his way. And I think there's like a series of Stanley family books. So this is the first one, right? Yes, mm-hmm. there's think, a few. Which it totally makes me want to read the rest just to see how that dynamic continues to unfold. Yeah, me too. I don't think I realized that there is a series around this book. I definitely didn't read any of the other books when I was a kid, but I'm curious to see what happens next with these guys. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Amanda because Amanda's entrance into the family, into the family home is really where the book kicks off. Mm-hmm. And David had met Amanda briefly when their parents were quote unquote going together. I loved that right. phrase. I love that. Um, <laughs> love used to say that yeah. like when I was in middle school, maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Love a, love a throwback phrase like that. And Hilarious. he sort of had a sense that Amanda was like interesting or exciting. And I pulled out one line from like the moment when he's waiting for her to arrive uh, where the book says all of David's clues and instincts seem to indicate that he should be prepared for almost anything and mm-hmm. he thought he was he hoped he was so he's ready he's like I don't really know much about my new stepsister but I feel like things are going to change when she arrives and she rolls up she's in this like very extravagant costume it's clear that she wants to make a statement like yes. she's not in this mindset where she's like you know what in a couple of days or even later tonight at dinner I'm going to let my new siblings know that I'm really into the occult as she sort of uh-huh. describes it. She's like, no, they're going to know when I arrive that this is yeah. what I'm into. Like yeah. she is here to declare herself. What were your first impressions of her in this moment of, of introducing her full like identity to the whole family? I mean, she is, she's a precocious teen. She's a preteen, yeah. but she's, she's a teenager. You know, she's like, she comes in and she, there's a point later where he talks about cool. David talks about like what cool was mm-hmm. and like to be cool was to not care about anything and to act bored and to sort of be disdainful. And I think Amanda 
I think by the end of the book, David realizes like that's not actually cool. But in the beginning of the book, Amanda wants so much to be cool and to be, she is, I guess my heart breaks for Amanda too, even though in the beginning you're sort of like, oh, geez. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, she is a pain in the butt. You know, she's like, she's a pain in the butt, unhappy teen, and she's trying to really kind of, she's trying to get her mother. She's trying to probably doing the same thing to her father, although that's a whole other thing to talk about. Um, yeah. And she, she, she's so uncomfortable, you know, she doesn't want to go to this house. And why would she? Because it's scary. It's like this big house. It's different than everything she's known. There are these siblings there that she's never, you know, she's met once before. So I think she cloaks herself in this occult idea I don't even know if the friend Leah is like really her friend. I think she's kind of like a bad friend if she's even a friend. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about um, that too. I was like, is Leah even real? Like, yeah, this, she's like, just this and, person and you read about. <laughs> yeah, is she like 35 or like, yeah. who is Leah? <laughs> yeah, she works at some um, like crystal shop in town and <laughs> and Amanda wishes that they were friends. Yeah. And she, she doesn't speak to her mother. Leah doesn't. And Molly doesn't like Leah. Leah seems like, Leah seems bad too. But my, I'm not sure if, it's partly that I'm older, I have stepkids, and it's like, I do feel for Amanda. She is coming into a situation in which she has to arm herself in some way and make her feel, make herself feel more powerful because she has no power and she's being forced to do something she doesn't want to do. And she's probably scared. And so it's like, just, it's poignant, you know, and she comes in, she puts like that, the the reflective triangle on her forehead to show that she's, she braids her hair and all these different like snaky braids. And then the little kids are like, what is that? (laughs) Like so confused. So she does make an impression. She's totally trying to bother her mom, which you see because they get in a fight right away. I did also think while reading it, like, this is classic because it's sort of like introduce this stranger into the setting and you've got immediate kind of chemistry and interest and compulsion forward. And it's like, what's going to happen next? You definitely want to keep reading to find out. Yeah, I had very complicated feelings about Amanda, and I echo everything that you said. There were moments where I was so frustrated with her because it just felt like she just wanted to roll in and be like, hey, you guys want to ruin my life? Great, I'll ruin yours. Like, that was my sort of first impression of her. Um, Totally. It's clear that she enjoyed being an only child. She's used to being an only child when she's on her dad's turf and that's her comfort zone. Again, as somebody who spent a lot of time in my mom's house when I was a kid where I was an only child and then I would spend time on the weekends at my dad's where I had much younger siblings, like that can be a hard transition. And I got Mm -hmm. used to it very quickly because I was doing it all the time, but I can understand that if this was like a brand new role for you at the age of 12, which is like a really hard age anyway, Mm -hmm. your instinct might be to like act up, which feels like a very like grandmother kind of phrase to use, but I feel like she's like acting out because she doesn't really know what else to do. Totally. I'm frustrated by her because I think like the Stanley sort of had a good routine going. David had struggled to get used to Molly at first because he, of course, was grieving his mother and the fact that his mm-hmm. dad got remarried so quickly, I'm sure, is very difficult. But he he says that he's now used to having Molly around and he really does seem to see her as his mom, which is really sweet. So the fact that Amanda comes in and is like, screw all this, like, I'm just gonna shake things up, like, that made me frustrated. But at the same time, I felt for her because it was yes. so clear that there was a lot going on below the surface um, oh that my she gosh. just wasn't talking about. And again, like, being 12 is hard enough as it is to have all of these changes going on around you. Something that I talk about a lot in my own experience with being in a blended family is that with the construction of my family, I'm the only person who has like my exact set of parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I always say that like, I sometimes feel like family dynamics would be easier for me if I had a full sibling who like totally understood exactly how I felt, who was managing the exact same relationships that I was managing. And I think Amanda probably sees the Stanley's have yeah, all of these siblings and she's coming in completely alone. So yeah. I, I so get that. So she has to do something different to to get attention and to exert her authority. I mean, she I think she does feel very alone. And I think the way that she talks about her father, Zilpha Keatley Snyder is like brilliant at the subtext that isn't what the character is saying, but like when reading it, at least for me reading it, I was like, oh wow, your dad is bad. Yeah. Like her dad like sends her to her mother's 
but agrees to send her to her friend Leah's a day before or something. And then Amanda can just take a cab to her mother's and she's 12. You know, like I was like, whoa. And I felt like the worshipful way she talks about her dad indicated that he was kind of just letting her do whatever, but not necessarily parenting her. And that seemed problematic for her. And also part of her character, you know, then she has to come to this house where she's alone. She's against this team, the team of the Stanleys. And they all seem to be having, they have their situation kind of worked out and she's different. So she's kind of going like, oh, I wish I could be back with my dad, but her dad isn't so great for her. That seems clear. Yeah. I found one blog post that was reviewing this book, sort of what we're doing from an adult perspective. Uh Uh-huh. And I hadn't picked up on this, and maybe this was just me not paying attention or being naive, but this blogger has a theory that her dad was having an affair while he was married to Molly and that that affair has continued Uh and that that's part of the tension. Amanda does go out of her way to mention that there's a housekeeper who lives at her dad's house. And so this blogger went as far as to assume that maybe there was an affair with the housekeeper and the blogger acknowledges like, yeah, this might be a stretch. That takes care of kids. That's what she says to David. Yeah. So (laughs) it could be a stretch, but like when I read that, I was like, oh, maybe like it does seem like there's something going on. It seems like the divorce was not an amicable one. Molly has a lot of feelings about just kind of the way that Amanda shows up, just sort of in immediate opposition to her. Like, it's clear that Uh Amanda is ready to do whatever she can do to set herself apart, not only from the other kids, but from Molly. But one of the things that I really liked about her was, like, A, you have to admire her commitment. Like, she is... (laughs) <laughs> she's all in on this on this identity that she's forming for herself. And I do remember that feeling of being a preteen or being a preteen and being like, this is who I am. Like I yeah. am into horses and this is yeah. my thing. And no matter what you talk to me about, I will find a way to bring it back to horses and I will try to teach everybody that I know about horses and like that's me. Until of course I went and like fell off a horse and then I had to come up with a new identity. <laughs> Um, so I liked I that about loved her. I that it was like the occult or witchcraft or magic. And it brought me back to being a teenager, not a teenager. I was probably like eight or something, but like a, a preteen and like getting really into the idea that you could create magic. We would like go make these potions out of like toothpaste and other weird stuff that we would find. And my mom would get really mad that we were wasting toothpaste. But like, <laughs> it was so cool to just imagine that you could make things happen, which I think links to the idea of power and Amanda and how she's really searching for power and her place. And she's just decided, oh, maybe it's this. And she does want revenge and sort of to punish her family too, but she also is crying out for that place. Where does she belong? How can she feel empowered? Because she doesn't feel empowered. And I liked that. You know, there's a moment where she's kind of like beating her crow and that made me really not like her. Yeah. (laughs) But she's of rage and she's angry and like also could do with some therapy clearly you know so I think that was it's like what happens to the rage when this happens to you as a teenager and she kind of she gets mad at her crow that's kept in a cage that Blair is like able to charm just by being sweet you know Um, yeah I think she just feels like she has lost control of her life which I think is something that a lot of kids at that age experience when their life is completely turned upside down by changes in their family, parent, parental divorces, loss, moves, anything really Uh can make a kid feel that way. And I think the way that she treats her crow, which is really upsetting, is sort of like a symptom of that. I think the way that she treats the younger kids, she just wants to be in charge of them. And if she can't be in charge of them, she doesn't want to have anything to do with them. I'd be remiss if I didn't call out a really problematic scene um, I know which, what you're, yeah, you're going to say. I know. It feels so <laughs> yeah. icky to even yeah. talk about it. But one of my goals going forward with SSR is really like not to shy away from pointing out these moments because yeah. it's it's really upsetting that they exist at all in these yeah. books that we read when, when we were kids. But I want to be more deliberate about calling them out. And this one is just so glaringly problematic in one of those moments where Amanda is trying to show that she can control the kids. I believe they're out doing like yard work or something. Yeah, they're trying to weed. And David is like... Like trying to sort of get them to weed right. because his dad has told them, he, his dad has said, David, can you try to get the kids to weed? Which I also thought, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going off, but like, you're going to try to get some four-year-olds to right. weed? That seemed crazy in itself, but yeah. then a more problematic thing happens. Yeah. And David is of course trying to like, he's going with like the carrot method where he's like, please, mm-hmm. like, don't you want to help? Like, wouldn't it be fun to help? And you can just kind of yeah. picture like his calm, sweet nature trying to lead the way on this. It's mm-hmm. not working. 
Um, and Amanda is like, well, I could probably get them to do it. She's, of course, not helping herself. David's like, I bet you can't. Like, trust mm-hmm. me. I've been doing this by myself for months. Like, this is not going to work. Whatever. But Amanda challenges him and is like, no, I can do it. And so she introduces a game that she calls Slaves and Slave Driver. Yeah. And I'll let listeners kind of sort of think what they will about maybe how that game would play out. It's really pretty rough. Not only does she demand work from the kids, she also fashions sort of like a fake whip um, Mm -hmm. and starts whipping the children. Obviously, this is um, a really gross callback and reference to the slave trade and the treatment of slaves in years gone by. And it's shocking to me that it appears in a book from the 70s by an author Mm -hmm. who I think seems to me to be pretty progressive. And and I guess that this is like a thing that kids did. But to me, there's like no way around talking about how terrible and problematic it is. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that it's so lightly dropped. Yeah. You know, it's like as if it's just another thing that they're doing, just another game. And I don't know if I would almost want to believe that that was her commentary, but I don't think it is, you know, yeah. Um, that it could be like commentary about how lightly those things were. But I think it, you know, obviously, if this book was published now, that would not appear in it. Or if it did, there would be a conversation about what that really meant. Yeah, I agree with you. That was shocking to me. And it's weird, because it's only like a couple of paragraphs. And like you yeah. said, it's so casual. So yeah. that was a really problematic thing about Amanda. Um, I do think, again, it like is a symptom of the fact that she feels this loss of control, and she really wants to assert her own control over other situations. This was obviously a really gross way to do it and a way that I'm just like disgusted that it would appear in a book. The other thing that I'd like to note about Amanda, sort of on the other end of things that I really liked, like she has made their life really exciting. As Mm -hmm. difficult as she's made their life, as, as many sort of problematic moments as she's introduced into their routine, she shakes things up in a way that they really needed. Like she has this sort of magic about her. You can almost see it playing out on screen. It's like a Mary Poppins effect kind of where Mm -hmm. like you have these kids that are sort of conservative. They're kind of like repressed. They're in this schedule. They're in this routine. David is doing the very best he can. He's such a good kid, but they're bored. It's summer vacation. Mm -hmm. They're all home. They're kind of in the middle of nowhere and they, they don't really seem to have a lot to be excited about. And Amanda comes in and as hard as it is for them all to adjust to her and as many moments as I had where I like did not love her, you can't argue the fact that like she brings that like special something and Mm -hmm. makes their life more exciting. And we see it at the end where throughout like the, I would say the final third of the book, the main focus is on the possibility that there's a poltergeist in the house who's causing all of these problems. And at the end, it becomes clear that Amanda was really the poltergeist behind most of that mischief. And David is kind of sad, which I thought was really sweet. I wanted to read out that quote because I thought it was really representative Mm -hmm. of like what it's like to be a kid and to sort of have an adventure end even if it's like a fake adventure the book says sitting there holding the cupid's head David began to realize that he was feeling a little disappointed disappointed that there might not ever have been a real poltergeist he knew too that the kids would feel the same way and it was funny but he didn't think that at this point Amanda would be the least bit disappointed it seemed strange that Amanda who was so crazy about such things didn't seem to like the supernatural nearly so much when it really started happening and the kids who didn't know a thing about the occult world seemed on the whole to enjoy it and I just love that I feel like that says so much about Amanda in just one paragraph like a she's brought this huge adventure to the family that they didn't even know that they needed and b she's like oh this is real now I'm not interested in it like I'm so over this well it's kind of like also when she is um they have to do the the or the chore with the lizards yeah then they all have to have reptiles yeah and she actually hates lizards and snakes Mm -hmm. you know she's like terrified of them just like her mother is but she wants to scare her mom with them so it's kind of like i mean amanda's motivations are dubious throughout (laughs) clearly but then i like how david's motivations come through even earlier in the book i think he says something a couple of times about like how there was this chance that something might happen that would be different. Or, you know, there was kind of this, he likes the suspense of not knowing what's going to happen next. And that is exciting. And he kind of wants to believe in this magic, which then in the end, he does sort of get to believe in because there is a mystery that isn't really solved. Yeah. And hopefully gets solved in the other books, which I guess you and I might find out if we decide to keep going in this series. I know. Well, I was just thinking when you were talking about Amanda and the family and how everything, like, I wonder if Zilpha Keatley Snyder 
planned these books out all at the same time. Uh, or if it was something like, I feel like the way that she creates the dynamic almost indicates that she was thinking this was going to be a series. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, cause you want to know more about how they're going to get together and you want Amanda really as a character is somewhere between abhorrent and likable, mm -hmm. which is necessary because she can't be that bad. She has to be like a little bit good and a little bit appealing and a little bit understandable because you want to keep reading about her. Yeah. And at the end of the book, she really chills out. It was, it felt yeah. to me like as soon as she didn't have anything to prove, like as soon as they had sort of sorted out the fact that like, yes, she was behind a lot of the quote unquote poltergeist activity, but not all of it, you know, as soon as she sort of had like played out her whole plan, Mm -hmm. She didn't have anything to prove, and she was just kind of, like, integrating more seamlessly into the rest of the family. And it was really kind of interesting as an adult to watch that and to kind of, like, see how those dynamics play out. And Zelfa Keatley Snyder was a teacher. I don't know if she had mm -hmm. any children of her own, but she's very familiar with, like, how kid behavior works. And she has all of these wildly successful kids' books to show for it, of course. But I, I really bought into the way that this family was able to come together once— Amanda got past this like wall that she had up. I mean, I hate to use bachelor speak, but like she had some walls <laughs> up and like, oh, for sure. She really yeah. had to kind of play out this wild, like supernatural plot, like play act thing that yeah. she had in her mind in order to sort of come to peace with like, this is where she is. This is who her mom is. These are the conversations that she has to have. Once she'd gotten through all of the, like, pageantry, she was fine. Yeah. I mean, I still think she is going to be a pain in the butt throughout For the sure, series. yeah. Like, hints of a pain in the butt. Maybe not as much of a pain in the butt as she is in this one. But, yeah, she, she grows, which is, like, I think all of those characters— Minus maybe the dad have their own little arc. You know, maybe not Janie, because Janie kind of just, like, is fun and obnoxious. Yeah, I don't but, want Janie to change at all. Like, I hope Janie has yeah. no arc, and I hope she just goes on being her amazing self through the whole series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's great. But Blair kind of, like, in a very light way comes into his own, or you realize that he's more powerful than you thought. David clearly has a journey that he's on. Molly kind of figures herself out a little bit more. I loved how Molly like brought in her super practical friend to come and help her. Ingrid, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's um, like, I'm an artist and I like am not built for this situation. So I'm going to bring my like very black and white, like logical, calm friend in and you're going to help me sort this out. Yeah. And the kids are like, who is this Ingrid? Like, she's mean and scary. Yeah. Like, she just, she takes no nonsense. She's not fun. But I liked that. I could imagine being Molly in that situation and calling my best friend and being like, can you come stay with me? Because there might be a ghost at my house. Yeah, I would need an Ingrid <laughs> in that situation yeah. for sure. How did you think the, the mystery part of the book was structured? So we have all of these like moments where the poltergeist is potentially interfering in the Stanley's lives. But it's not clear to us as readers if there's a real poltergeist. We know that there are reports of a poltergeist in the same house years and years ago. So like maybe, but then also it's Amanda. Like how do you think the author set that whole mystery up for young readers? Well, I feel like since I read the author's introduction, I, I feel like I'm like, I got it spoiled a little bit, yeah. which doesn't mean that it was spoiled. It like was actually great. But the idea that a teenage girl and that teenagers tended to be the the cause of most poltergeist incidents. Yeah, the common thread <laughs> between all of yeah. them. Yeah, was like, oh, there were angry teenagers in the house. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think she does it really beautifully because she never says that it couldn't be both or that a sort of secondary presence couldn't be real. And in the end, you know, I think there is evidence that there's something else going on, right? Yeah, there's definitely something bigger at play here. We're not quite sure what it is, but it seems like there might be more of that in the later books in the series. I think it was a but good balance. The, yeah, and the cool thing about it was that it wasn't scary. It was kind of comforting. Yeah. Um, almost like there's a good ghost. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think old houses have spirits, you know, like I, it felt kind of like that, that Maybe there was someone, maybe even the mother looking out for them. And I don't know, just like a spirit force that Blair could connect with because Blair could see things that other people couldn't see because he wasn't told that those things didn't exist. 
Yeah, I like that take on it, that it could be their mother's spirit. And I happen to think that any spirit that's connecting with Blair directly, like any spirit that knows Blair has to be good. Like it can't be an evil force because he's so wonderful. I I will say that as I was reading this and I was kind of like observing my thought process about it, I was aware of the fact that as Amanda was like defending herself and trying to explain to the adults that like, yeah, I did some of these more harmless things early on. Like I put some of the pebbles in the house and like there were a few things that yes, I can take accountability for. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. do these bigger things. Like there's this sort of bigger incident that happens later on in the book where like all of these rocks are all over. There's a big box of rocks that falls with dust and like Mm -hmm. the the head of the headless cupid um, Mm -hmm. that was on the banister of the house. And Amanda's like, great, I did all this other stuff, but I can't take responsibility for this. And I was very aware of the fact that I didn't believe her. And yeah, I mean, you can make an argument for the fact that like she just doesn't really set herself up to be a reliable source through the book. But Mm -hmm. I also is trying to be like very critical of my own thought process Uh there and it's something that we've talked about on the podcast before where I just think that in books written years and years ago like there is this threat of like grown-ups never believe the little girl ever Uh uh-huh ever it just never happens whether the little girl is lying or telling the truth it's very rare in these older books that the adults just kind of like agree with what a young girl or a young woman tells them. And so I was just, I was thinking about that as I was reading this book, because I I don't know, it just, it kind of made me a little bit frustrated with myself that like, I was so convinced that Amanda was lying. It's just, it's like a conditioning thing that I was very, again, aware of. And I think it's because the adults wouldn't believe her, Yeah, you know, and they don't want to believe her. That's the thing. It is not useful for adults to believe that there are poltergeist, there's a poltergeist in the house or that, you know, it isn't the teenage daughter who's angry. But I think the magic of it is that the kids can believe it. I don't know. I believed her. I don't know why. I just thought if she had really done it all, she would have taken credit for it. And then I'm trying to remember exactly that moment with Blair where he tells David, oh, the girl gave me the the head. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't think he means Amanda. No, you're right? like, somebody else. It's a ghost. <laughs> And earlier, there's somewhere else in the book, I read it twice, um, and the second time, I noticed him saying something like about the girl earlier on in the book. So I feel like Blair is like communing with a spirit the whole time. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And that made me believe that Amanda was telling the truth, but she could just as easily be lying. So it's not, I mean, with her, it's definitely a toss up because as a character, like, I think, I think it really could go either way. Like as a reader, depending on whether you sort of lean more toward that side, that's like really kind of sad and empathetic and you want to feel for her. Or if you lean toward that side where you're like, no, she really needs to chill out. She's kind of out of control. I think depending on kind of like what side of that you land on, you probably would either believe her or not. But Mm -hmm. it just, I was thinking about the fact that I think that in older media, we've been conditioned often to just like not trust a young girl's account of something. And so I wanted to call that out. On the whole, I know you didn't read this when you were a kid, so we can't really compare this reading experience to one from when you were growing up. But on the whole, did you enjoy this? Do you think that it holds up? Do you think it's a book that kids in 2020 would enjoy or would take something from? I do. I think the slave driver scene would need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, I really do want these kids to feel more supported. As a step-parent, I felt like, the kids really were sort of on their own so much of the time. And that worried me, (laughs) you know, and I think that's not to say that it's not accurate, but in a book for kids, especially middle grade kids, I think you would want to show more of a familial support system and kind of talking about emotions and David not having to be like the de facto babysitter at all times. All of that, I felt like there would be a place for a revise of this book that could be applicable to today's kids a little better and get it get at some of those problematic aspects but I totally loved reading it (laughs) you know it was it's magical it's fun it's interesting I love how just as we were talking about it now thinking about the headless cupid and how in the end there's a head for the cupid Mm -hmm. and the whole story is about a family coming together and like becoming a whole and so the fact that this old house had this headless cupid that there's like a bit of a mystery to that and history to that and then that the house can be made 
hole with the Cupid again and that this new family is living in it and they're going to have adventures together. It's all very like circular to me and beautiful. I like how that thematic aspect comes out. And in terms of the characterization, the kids are just so much fun to read. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a really fun book to come back to. Again, aside from those extremely problematic elements, um, I thought that on the whole, it held up and it just, it brought back some like really nostalgic feelings. Like the smell of the paper for this one, like really brought me back. And yeah, it just, it reminded yeah. me why I loved this author so much when I was growing yeah. up. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with the poltergeist and scary stuff because yeah, I neither. feel like she's, she's very balanced with that. Yeah. It, you this know, book was on like the yeah. top 10 list of the most challenged books. Um, it's a list that the ALA puts out every huh. decade. And this was yeah. in the top I'm sorry, it was on the list of the top 100 most frequently challenged books between 1990 and 2000 due to the use of witchcraft by children. And I think like, and to me, I I don't know that the use of witchcraft anyway would be a reason that I would feel like this book shouldn't be read, but the the children in this book aren't even doing witchcraft. Like the whole point is that it's like a game. Yes. And also that it's like the idea that magic is real is, is, is something really important that we all need to believe in sort of on a level. Mm-hmm. Like that magical things do happen, that beautiful things that you can't explain happen, that spirits maybe come and comfort us. You know, all of that is like, I think completely reasonable and also important to kind of believe in. And really for kids, like in terms of imagination and ideology, I think that's really important. I think the problem is like maybe a lack of multiculturalism, a lack of acknowledgement of the slave driver game being really problematic, stuff like that. But the poltergeisty stuff is like super fun. Yeah, I thought it was fun too. I I agree with that. Other than The Headless Cupid, what have you been reading and loving lately that you would recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be a kid's book. It can just be anything that's uh, that's just been really great. Well, I just, I realized that I have never read Beverly Cleary's memoir, have you read that? I haven't. I've heard it's really yeah. great. <laughs> the Girl from Yam Hill. I just got it and I just started it, which is, you know, I'm like in the first chapter, but it's wonderful. And she is, I feel like one of the great heroes of American children's literature. And my dog is named after Ramona. That's <laughs> so, amazing. <laughs> like, and I think we get, we're going to get another dog and name it after another character in Beverly Cleary. But I got that. I also started reading Jasmine Guillory's second book, I believe, which is The Proposal. Oh yeah. And it's, it's romance and it's like just so fun. Like just you want to lay on the couch all day and finish it. Amazing characters, really fun, romance, sexy, you know, just like great. Yeah, I just started her newest book, Party of Two, the other night and I'm loving it. I haven't read their proposal. I've read a few of her others, but I think Party of Two so far is my favorite. But I've heard Is the, it? Yeah, I've heard the proposal is really great too. So I think I might have to go back and read that one. I've read I was a few gonna of the start others. with the first. What the first is the wedding date, right? Yeah. They didn't have it at my bookstore. So uh, they have to order it. But so I was like, okay, I'll just read the proposal. And I think they're all linked kind the, of. Yeah, right? they are. Like you don't really have to read them in any order. I don't think you can just kind of like come into them as they're available or whatever. But my book club had this hilarious situation happen last year where we, I, th- I don't even know which of the two books we had chosen, but half of us read the wedding date and then half of us read the wedding party thinking that we were uh-huh. all reading the same book. And it, awesome. it was funny because like we realized, oh, they're connected, but there's not really any necessity to read one before the other. So that was, it made it very clear to me in that moment where I was like, oh, it's this kind of cool related series where you recognize one character from this book or from that book, but you can kind of like figure it out as you go. Yeah. I love that. She's created this whole big world that then she can sort of go into different characters, romances, and it's really fun. There's like a woman in this book who has a cupcake bakery and I'm just like, I want all of the cupcakes all the time that she's describing. (laughs) I love a book with a bakery in it. It's like also one of my favorite things to write about. So, um, love that element. And I will include links to your recommendations in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to the headless cupid. And of course, Jen, to your books, unclaimed baggage and save the date and I know you have another book in the work so I'll be sure to link to um, your website and your social media so that our listeners can keep tabs on what's going on and be sure to know right away when the new book becomes available oh I, I'm very excited for yeah. To, yeah when is um, the new I, book coming out I think right now it's scheduled for winter 22 which sounds like you know ages from now but 
I just filed a first draft to my editor at the beginning of June. So, and books take forever to come out. So it has to go through all of that. Yeah, I'm um, sure winter 2022 will start to not feel so far away as you continue down the path of, of getting it finished. <laughs> I hope so. But yeah, that's like something in this time to look forward to. Like, oh yeah, a book. That's great. A new book is coming out. That's yeah. Fun. Well, I'm so excited for you and I'm so excited to have had the chance to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for asking me. It was so fun. And it was amazing to get to read this book that I didn't get to read as a kid. Yeah, a fun opportunity that you probably never thought you'd get to talk about yeah. an old book on a podcast. <laughs> and now I'm going to read all of the Stanley family books, I think. Yeah, we'll have to touch base on them later on. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Perfect. Jen. Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.